The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour. Countdown to tomorrow's CPI, the latest inflation read, which could very well decide where this market goes in the weeks ahead, not to mention earnings in less than 48 hours. We'll debate all of it with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Shannon Sakosha, Kerry Firestone, Brian Belsky. Everybody's at Post 9 today. Check the markets. The three majors are in the green. Uh, not doing great, but nonetheless, they are all in the green. Russell's a bit negative. You heard Sarah talk about the 10-year at 4%. But it's going to get real in the next couple of days. As we know, we continue to highlight committee moves, and that's where I'm going to begin yet again. I think that's where the real highlights are of what you guys are doing, buying and selling. And Carrie, you had enough with <laughs> PayPal. You sold PayPal. Now, we highlighted a call yesterday, okay, yeah. which took the price target from 118 to 66. Yeah. Is that was Not, your was that your last straw? Like you saw you saw that no, no. call and was like I'm out and I'm just no, done with this no. thing. Um, we we sold it last week. So I was here last week and I suggested that it was this was really a do or die time period where we were assessing what PayPal's quarter was going to look like, what they might be saying about 2024, and it had to do with whether they were losing market share, they were going to be able to grow their revenues as much as expected. If they didn't, then the stock that people think is cheap would not really be a cheap stock. And that was not something that we wanted to go into 2024 holding. Yeah, we're looking at the stock here. Um, I'm trying to think of what it's done uh, over the last few months when a lot of those kinds of stocks have gone up a lot and hasn't really done all that much, no. right? It's only up 6%. Yeah, I mean, there's just better places for us to have our money invested. And, you know, we were an owner of PayPal for so many years that most of our accounts had a gain in PayPal, as hard as that is to believe. What are you looking at? Then and so you take the cash here, and then what? What sort of attractive to you in, in the market where it might go? Uh, well, I, I think we're looking in parts of technology where there haven't been the big moves. Um, there, there obviously has been an awful lot of uptrends in tech over the past 12 months, but there are some pockets where that's not entirely true. Um, also, healthcare, healthcare. We've talked about that. It's part of the market that really is underperformed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's more M&A activity. There's perhaps more drug discovery. So those are two parts of the market and sectors we we like. Okay, so we move past that move, and we have some others coming out throughout the show. Obviously, but Brian Belsky, welcome back. Happy New Year. Good hey, to see happy you. New Year. Thanks for having us. Um, interesting start to the year, uh -huh. to say the least. Um, you know, after this massive burst we had to end, end 2023, how do things look to you? I think the same. I mean, the last four to six weeks of the of the of the year really started to bring credibility back to owning equities 
in, in North America in particular, and the broadening out theme really began to happen. The first week in January, you know, a lot of people were still on vacation, volume was light, the adults kind of came back on Monday the 8th, and now we started to really see where people wanted to be positioned. And I think, you know, going into, obviously this is a, an important week as you highlighted with respect to what we're gonna see in inflation, and clearly on financial earnings, I think that's really gonna cut things off cut, uh, uh, for, for the year and kind of set the pace, I think for, for banks and financials in 2024. So we feel really, really good about where we're positioned. Yeah. Um, you don't think that the Santa Claus rally failing, so to speak, right? It's supposed to carry on into the very first part of the new year. So it fails. Market gets a little rocky. You know, we had one day this week where we, you know, had this burst, but otherwise been choppy. Why? You know, it's interesting. We kind of, we have short-term memories. We have long-term memories. Here's the short-term memories. Last year at this time, remember, we had this massive rotation into tech. And the reason why we had massive rotation into tech is because of the January effect. So the worst performing stocks in 2022 were the best performing stocks in the first three months of 2023. And so I think we're still remembering that. Now we're disappointed that we're not seeing the same type of strength. We meaning maybe short-term investors with respect to the market. But I think that's kind of misguided. That's why from a really taking two steps back and thematically looking at what's really happening in equities. That's why we think and we said in our year ahead piece that 2024 is going to be year two of normalization, a three to five year period where you have normalized high single digit to low double digit performance, high single digit to low double digit earnings growth for the market, average valuation in some sort of a trading range in 10 year treasuries. I think we're in the very beginning stages of that. Average valuation? Because aren't we above average valuation right now? We are, but so at $250 earnings, it's a great point, at $250 earnings, and we might be low on that, I think you're going to see uh, multiple contraction this year as the as earnings start to outpace where the market is. I think that's the call where most people are missing that. All right, Shan, what about you? Chris Harvey today at Wells is cautious before the deluge. Talking about earnings. Cautious entering peak earnings season given, number one, the expected quote-unquote management of guidance, perhaps driven by weaker pricing volume trends, and two, the negative post-earnings return for the 21 quote-unquote, off-season SPX firms that have reported. I mean, there are some companies that have reported, like I'm thinking FedEx and Nike. Those don't exactly make you feel great about earnings season, do they? Yeah, I mean, the tail end of earnings season, Scott, was clearly not as strong as we would like to see, particularly coincident with the rally that we experienced in November and December in the market. Um, I think that the issue here is that if you go back over the course of 2023, for each of the earnings season, we saw earnings estimates kind of pick up as earnings season went on. So if you graph that, you really do see that as we went through earnings season for the last three quarters, we experienced estimates moving higher as analysts were digesting data and thinking that perhaps the expectations from a macro perspective were understated for 2023. This is a particularly important earnings season because there are a lot of expectations that are baked in now for this soft landing or really no landing in many industries. And so I think the concern about potential conservatism in guides is probably warranted. However, I do think that this is where you can start to see some of that dispersion, that differentiation on a more micro level based on the fact that we're all looking at the potential for this conservatism. How does management guide to that? How do they complete the narrative as we move into this first part of the year? And how contingent will that be on some of the macro factors that have really driven the market return over the last 12 months? All right, so we're gonna get to some stuff about financials coming up in the look ahead there and some of the predictions, but 
Com Services, new 52-week high today. NASDAQ continuing its bounce back. We're looking at like three days in a row. Apple's red. So what's your view of this market here? So we're seven trading days in, and you have to begin to ask yourself the question, okay, how long do you give it for the consensus to be right? How long do you give it? How long do you sit? Because last year, Last year, I waited till April. This year, I'm not waiting till April. Well, you're so wait far, till the, uh, year to date. I mean, you're going to give it eight days? Or you, you're going to okay, make up your so mind well, after you, seven? Well, you tell me. How, do, you, do you respect what's going on in the marketplace right now? Do you respect the dominance of algorithms right now in which the S&P equal eight, which was supposed to outperform, it's underperforming right now by 75 basis points. How about small caps? They're down 3% so far year to date. Mega caps. We were supposed to forget about mega caps. Guess what? You have a MAG-5. You know what they are. Exclude Tesla. Exclude Apple. Don't run too far away from mega caps. And oh, Scott, by the way, how's your energy equities doing? Because everyone loves them. Not mine. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. yours. Oh, energy is going to be the sector in 2024. Because he's got like 10 of them. That's right. I do. I do. I own it. I own it. 2.7% energy equities are the worst sector so far year to date. Why are they not being bought? Natural gas is up 20%. Spot price of oil is up 1%. How long do you give it? So what are you telling me? That 2024 is going to be 2023 all over again? That's a risk, isn't it? We're going to have have mega caps outperform everything else? That's a big risk for portfolio managers. So no one is going to be able to sit here and say, on January 10th, well, at the end of the year, I believe that this sector or this equity size class is going to be the one that outperforms. As the year evolves, you reshape your risk according to what the market's doing. And what I'm telling you is January 31st, Mm -hmm. Joe T ETF will rebalance. I am in a period right now where I cannot make any individual changes to personal holdings of equities. I can do some options. I could do the QQQ, the SPY. But I'll tell you what. So you could just get worked up and angry about it. I'll tell you what. On January 31st, if this is the formation we have right now, I personally own Microsoft. That's not enough in the mega caps. I am personally going to have to buy some of the other mega caps, and it will be consistent with what we do in the ETF. Yeah, but what's going to be the pivot, though? What's going to be the pivot between... The pivot to, for you to say, okay, it's time. Because last year, the market was already looking at that. Well, I know this massive Price. amount of PTSD last Price. year, right? Price. And then nobody, nobody trusted the rally. Like, this is just a BS rally. Nobody, well, you did because you're, you're really smart. But the majority of institutional investors missed the rally until March. And that's when they got into tech. They didn't buy tech until I got it March. in April. But it's just not, yeah. it's not just those five, though. I mean, you, you are seeing some rotation into some things that underperformed last year. And maybe it's more interest rate sensitivity maybe it's you know maybe yeah, that's like why you're seeing utilities utilities does Reeds? that get you excited well, utilities the best performing sector well, this year it, the it healthcare is, is. now yeah. does it get me excited me yes if absolutely. utilities are going to lead the way in 2024 <laughs> we're going to have a bad year yeah so we're going to have an so unexciting what year what i would argue though we're going to go like 2 and 16 what I would argue as is that there might be a perception, and I think it would be an inaccurate perception that right now this short-term strength in those more defensive sectors is is indicating that we're entering a period where we are setting up for a more bearish tilt. I think that's overstated. I think that there is just a little bit of rotation right now, looking at some of the laggards, taking some money off the table, and perhaps in those two names or the other four names that aren't participating along with these five, there could be a rotation. Right. So, but there are things that are doing well, Scott, that are outside of those I know, five but, names. But let's, let's zero in on this a little bit more. This comes down to a debate, Carrie, over whether mega cap tech is too expensive yeah. or not. 
You come into this year, people say, well, valuations are too stretched, so therefore there's going to be a rotation into valuations that are more attractive and cheaper, right? Like some of the areas that we've already talked about, energy and healthcare, industrials and and, and things of, of the like. RBC today downgrades tech to market weight from overweight. They say both valuations are now clearly expensive for the median stock in the sector on both an absolute and relative P.E. basis. This is where the debate begins and ends. Either these stocks are too expensive or they're not. So let's talk about a couple things that already we've heard. One is Joe's getting nervous. Look at Meta. Meta is the sort of name that makes people nervous who don't own it. Meta's up almost 4% today. I wouldn't use the word nervous. And it it is, well, sorry, but I did already. I would. Um, Go ahead. It's so close to its all-time high. I mean, people are saying better scramble and buy some because we haven't owned any and, you know, just run and catch the train. And I think that expensive is not a term that applies the way sort of traditionally one would think of stocks. NVIDIA, people talked about it as being expensive. It turned out it wasn't expensive at all. You know how much NVIDIA is up over a week? Uh, 12 percent? 14. Okay. So, but on a PE basis, and we don't own it, but on a PE basis, it's not that expensive. It's less expensive than, you know, all types of names in industrials you could come up with. You could say that Google is not that expensive and Meta isn't a, a, a particularly expensive stock. Salesforce on a PE basis now oh, for next year is not that expensive. Joe. It's a little bit higher than a market multiple. So that's why people like Joe are saying, whoa, maybe well, you would better buy them. Because Joe is pointing out, making a good point about last year, where consensus was just dead wrong coming into 2023, raising the question as to whether consensus is dead wrong in the view of 24. Savita Sobermanian, Bank of America, says Magnificent 7 expected to drive Q4 growth. So you're going to get your big earnings growth coming from those stocks, which makes it really difficult to look elsewhere. And yes, she's talking about NVIDIA, Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Apple, the big, the biggest drivers of Q4 EPS growth. And NVIDIA up 12% over the last five days. Where's the SMH? Is it the entire semiconductor industry that's rallying? No, it's NVIDIA. For whatever the reason might be, clearly investors, quants, algos, they want to own NVIDIA, and they don't have the same degree about the rest of the semiconductor industry, the same degree of excitement. And I think that's saying something about where ultimately the real growth is. The confidence in growth is with NVIDIA, not with the entirety of the semiconductor industry. Listen, we uh, we published a piece yesterday talking about uh, defending our overweight technology, which, oh, by the way, has been widely panned. And we love it when, we're, it's, when people come after us on sector picks. And for, well, for they're my, not always right. I mean, what do you exactly, mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. And so what happened we, to your financials, financials, financials? So you thing? just you just have to, you know, <laughs> I'm just keeping you honest. Man. I get it, man. I get it. Keeping you um, honest. But on technology, you like to criticize the criticizers. I, I do. Right, I'm just keeping you honest. I, I love it. And we were humbled by uh, the financials not working, but we still love them. Broken clock. Anyway, um, <laughs> On tech, valuation, by the way, is the worst thing you should look at in tech. It has no predictive power. We proved it in a, in a chart that we put in in our report. By the way, too, when you take a look at other parts of financial statements, including balance sheets, cash flow, and income statements, technology is not stretched. Okay. When you take a look at two-year performance, two-year average performance, you can't look at yearly because last year was such an anomaly, just like 22 is an anomaly. 80% of the time, when you see this type of performance and technology, it outperforms the next year. Your point's well taken. Look, Facebook had its worst, Meta, at its worst year ever in 22, and the best year ever in 23. Correct, correct. 
And so I think what's happening is, Shannon talked about dispersion, dispersion, dispersion. We've been screaming about dispersion increasing across the three major points of how we look at building an asset, meaning equities, industry sectors. Performance, earnings, valuation, they're all increasing. They're all increasing, I meaning you can't just buy technology or you just can't make broader market calls. The stock market is a market of stocks. And oh, by the way, technology, there's so many different bits and pieces of technology, you have to be a stock picker in technology. So it's not as easy as it was. The other sector that you, ju you just said how much you like it still, financials, right? They're gonna come out of the gates on Friday with, with their earnings. Now, these stocks have ripped since their October lows, all of them, okay? Does that change the calculus? for coming into earnings season, that the stocks have done so well, so the earnings, and the, well, the outlooks better be great. I think the believable feature uh, of, of financials is still kind of raw on the regional bank side of things. I don't think people are really believing that because of what's happening in commercial real That's estate. That's fair, but I'm but, talking about like the cities, Bank of America, BlackRock, so, Morgan so, Stanley, Goldman. We're talking 30 plus percent gains. Exactly, so, but think about this. If you, now, if you go stock by stock, Citigroup, which we which we uh, rolled out all of our J.P. Morgan positions and put into Citigroup December 1st, that's massively outperformed. I don't think you need to own both J.P. Morgan and Bank of America in, in similar sizes. So I think you own J.P. Morgan for dividends, but I think in a tactical portfolio, if you own Bank of America, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman, those should be your core positions in financials. And oh, by the way, their, group, their numbers are going to beat. They're going to beat their numbers because they've over-reserved and they're going to increase their dividends and their balance sheets are strong. Yeah, I mean, so that was the point I was going to make. I mean, I think the the shift in in terms of financials and even, you know, to a lesser extent in the regional banks, because I think that, you know, one of the things we look at is just, you know, what drives earnings for financials? And a lot of it is driven by provisioning or lack thereof for loan losses. And so if the expectation is, is that the economy is going to be potentially better than we anticipated, then there should be less delinquencies charge offs from a loan perspective. And that those provisions may be able to be unwound and could be additive from an earnings perspective. On the regional bank side, I think the emphasis on, on commercial real estate is real and warranted. However, I think that they're called regional banks for a reason. And so I think as, a, as an investor, from a micro perspective, from a fundamental perspective, looking at that from a geographic perspective and the makeup of that loan book is where you could see some divergence in financials. The last thing is, Scott, I know you want me to, to move. Please. But, um, but, I, but, Please. but from a I'm capital, glad when you do my work for me. Come, from a capital markets perspective, second half of the year certainly seems like there could be a pickup on the M&A side, not necessarily on the IPO side. Steepening so. yield curve helps, too. It does. The most compelling argument you can make for money-centered banks, I think, at this point, is the expectations are low. Earnings expectations for Friday, when you begin to see some of these money-centered banks report, uh, they're incredibly low. Net interest margin pressure is going to be evident. We've already heard from Citi and other banks talk about trading revenue that is going to be under pressure. Um, I think that Citi has done enough work to Brian's point early in the year in which if you get a little bit of a pullback off of earnings, there'll be strong buying demand for that one name. I like Citi. I also own JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. Boy, JP Morgan is the complete opposite of the rest of the money center banks where the expectations are remarkably yep. high. Mm -hmm. Harry, you say you need a lot of catalysts to move the needle for the big banks. Do you really? I mean, what do you need? I think you need them to show some earnings growth. I mean, they, they really have a low P.E. because people don't believe that there's going to be any real pickup in their business. And whether it's on the banking side, M&A side, capital but markets, it, but isn't, it's just... It, don't you think that that is going to pick up? 
I mean, loan, I, I, loan I, I growth, M&A? A lot of things happen outside of the banking world now. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a huge now private banking, shadow banking sector that is growing and enormous and attracting a lot of money to it. Sure, but so, you know, in an in a economic environment that you know, is better than expected, rates coming down, Yeah. Um, I, I hear you on private credit and, and that level of, of lending, but isn't the after a couple years of true uncertainty, can't you finally see yes. a bit of a rainbow? Yeah, so I guess the way I would characterize our thinking about financials, we're overweight financials, and we don't tend to own value-type banks, so that's not for us, but we own Blackstone. That's a financial. American Express is a financial. Schwab is the closest thing we come to a big bank, and so we own them because there's more growth. All right, so we're watching Boeing today, too, uh, which is in the green uh, for the first time in a few days. And we have a big deal coming up at 1 o'clock today. Uh, that is when Phil LeBeau has the interview with the CEO, an exclusive. Phil joins us now. Um, what do you think Calhoun's message to you is going to be? And maybe more importantly, Phil, to investors, what is he going to try and say to you today? Similar to what we heard in the employee town hall yesterday, which is we've got to do better. There is no excuse for these types of mistakes that have happened, although we don't know exactly what caused that door. Uh, that plug to blow out on the Alaska Airlines plane. Dave Calhoun says it doesn't matter. Ultimately, Boeing manufactured this plane. It has to do better. And I think that's what we're going to hear. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, what we're going to be discussing with Dave Calhoun in a bit, Scott. But let me bring you up to speed in terms of what's happening with the grounding of the uh, MAX 9s that are out there. Remember, 171 of them are grounded around the world. The bulk of them are flown by Alaska and United Airlines. The inspection rules have not been finalized yet. Remember on Monday when we reported that the FAA said, yep, you're good to go? Uh, they've decided they're walking that back now. So they are still in discussions with both Boeing as well as uh, the NTSB and sort of making sure that when these inspections are done, then the grounding can be lifted. The potential impact for Boeing on these groundings, let's say it lasts two weeks. Sheila Kayula gamed out a two-week impact on Boeing in terms of payments to airlines, maybe $36 million. Not a huge hit there. But the bigger question is the reputational risk. The FAA, sensing how important this is, walking back that they do not want to be seen as just green-lighting these planes to get back in the air, especially after loose parts were found, said operators must also complete corrective action requirements based on findings from the inspection prior to bringing any aircraft back into service. That was issued yesterday, two days ago, remember, that's when Alaska and United both said they had several instances of finding loose bolts or loose parts on the MAX 9s that they've been checking out. Don't forget, we're going to be talking with Dave Calhoun. That's coming up in about 40 minutes, Scott. Lots to talk to about not only this situation, and we know how Boeing has a safety team in place. They're going to get to the bottom of what happened in this situation. But the broader question is accountability and a culture of quality control. And how does Boeing reassure investors that when it says we're at 38 maxes per month right now, Scott, and we're going up to 50 by 2025, 2026, that it's going to be a smooth progression, that it's not going to be three months, oh, wait, we've got a grounding, we've got an issue, we've got a problem with one of our suppliers, okay, now we have another issue. That's been the problem here, Scott. 
Boeing has been unable to smoothly ramp up production. And I think Dave Calhoun realizes, you know, they've got to do better. And that's the message we're going to hear from him. Yeah. The other issue, which, you know, doesn't have the most immediate impact, Phil, on the stock price. He has to reassure flyers, too. Like we're going to be back to the top, back to those days with the Max where, you know, you're going in and you're looking at the type of equipment you're flying. If, if you're making a reservation, True. if you do have choice of airline. Now, we know the hub system eliminates that in many markets. But you know what I'm getting right. at, because after the initial incidents with the Max, you had that. Go, what kind of plane am I flying today? Well, I don't want to fly that one. So maybe I'm going to look elsewhere. Yeah, but that's a short-lived impact, Scott. That's not to diminish how people feel, and that's not to diminish this situation with Alaska Airlines. But I'm telling you, time and again, having covered this industry for several decades now, I always get this question from people. If there's an accident, will people stop flying a Boeing, an Airbus, whatever it may be? And time and again, what you hear is there may be some immediate, real close, short-term nervousness amongst flyers but it's not something that lasts for a long time. Doesn't mean you can dismiss it if you're Boeing or Airbus, but this is not something where people are going to say, I'm not flying that particular route because it's a, a, a max nine. Or the number of people who do that, Scott, is very, very yeah. low. Well, I mean, it's, it, it is, you know, the second time we're talking about major issues here. We'll see. Phil, we're looking forward to your interview. We'll see in about 35 minutes or you so bet. with Dave Calhoun. That's Phil LeBeau. So you, you own this stock. I, I see this coming down to, to two things. Yeah. It is one step forward versus two steps back versus duopoly. People right. who own the stock and say, ah, these are issues, they're, they're, you know, from a stock standpoint, let's just stock standpoint, okay? That's the issue that keeps you in the stock. Like Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal says, I'm out. I, don't, I can't take the, the risk anymore from the human side. Steph says, the human side worries me, obviously, but from a stock standpoint, I stay in it for the duopoly. You do, and that's why we are. And I know you love when I say this. I'm not going to say small, but we have a very minor position. All right. In, in I our did value, see that in the notes. I was going to give you. <laughs> in our, I was going to give you the business about that, but I, I was know. like, I'm tired of getting in our the value <laughs> portfolio. So we have the good fortune of running ten different disciplines and ten different benchmarks. In a value benchmark, and, and you're looking at a one percent position in fifty stocks, you want to bet on on the value that continues to get better because we've had a lot of two minute miners to talk in hockey terms, but this is a five minute major. And so they're going to be in the, in the penalty box for a while. And this is going to be all about credibility. Humility on the CEO's effort was good. It was a good start. Now we need to see credibility in terms of action steps and actually do that. Real quick. Well, what does that come down to in terms of cash flow expectations? Because that's what it's all about right. in 2024. Right. Is the $6 billion consensus going to need to come down to $5 billion or $4 billion? That's beyond probably, what people expect right now. The point is probably not. Right. Probably not. Because and, as we've seen some of the, the data come out over the last couple of days, it's like, okay, if you are United, for example, they fly the Max. You're gonna, what, are you going to cancel your orders? And then what are you going to do? Wait till 2030 to get a, get a new plane from Airbus? And therefore, the thesis that Stephanie Link and Brian are playing is ultimately looking specifically at the stock going to be the correct one. All right, straight ahead, we're trading more stocks on the move today. Lennar boosting its buyback. Joe owns that. We'll get his reaction. Plus, we have a big battle brewing over American Express. One firm says buy, another says sell, which means... Carrie and Joe, they're both in it. They're going to debate it next. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back. Take a look at some of today's stock movers. All right. We have ownership in a lot of names today. So Salesforce today named the top pick at Oppenheimer. Carrie, why don't you take that one first? They believe the company can grow earnings by more than 20% in fiscal 25. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they, they missed last year where the stock was up 100%. So well, glad that they're joining the party now. Thank you. Um, I, I think what we saw with Salesforce is a weakness in software and capital spending on technology that you know, persisted in 2022, started to change in 23. They got religion about cutting costs. They cut headcount, marketing, a lot of the sort of GNA that people said, you got to do it in order to improve margins. They did that. Now they're going to see sales growth. We're in double digits. We really should get to mid-teens. And I think that's possible. And yes, I think that Salesforce can continue to go higher. Brian, the target, what stock's 263, they say 300 is their target. You own that too. We do. And, and part for us, Scott, it's really about diversifying because we've got bigger positions in Oracle and, and Microsoft, but we like what the what we've seen in, in Salesforce in terms of the reorg and, and we had been in it for a while, so we enjoyed last year. Uh, Joey, you own this in your Joe T. Yeah. Oh, we do. Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Let's go to Home Depot. I agree with the 20% revenue growth. I agree with that expectation. The stock clearly is targeting November of 21's high at 311. And the headcount, the focus on reducing headcount has really been what's driven the stock to move higher, the cost efficiency. I got it. You need a little firmer prompt. I, I hear you. Okay, <laughs> we'll work on that. Home Depot. You don't own this, so I'm not coming to you. Okay, good. Wedbush upgrades it to outperform uh, from market perform. Carry you own Home Depot. Price target to 380 from 330. Much yeah. better year, they say, for home improvement spending is coming. Yeah, well, you can only defer maintenance on a house for so many years. After 2020 and 2021, when everyone put a new deck on their home, uh, and Home Depot was a big recipient of, you know, COVID money, um, it had a tough year last year because, you know, people didn't have anything to fix. So now they start fixing. If there was an inventory correction for the company, same store sales were weak weaker than expected. And now they've realized that they've had to control that inventory. They're doing it. Supply inventories are better. The channels um, are providing you know, better supply costs for them. And we think that they can beat expectations. Okay. Lennar, they've boosted their share buyback by $5 billion. Joe, you own this in the Joe T. Yes, I know you do. Um, so the stock's up 34% or so in the, in the, in the last month and in, in the last three months. 
So what's your take here, so, Joe, on Lennar going forward? So how do I do? So you're you're calling for the run play, and I was ready for the run play before. I was ready for the run play, and you just threw me a little screen pass, so I wasn't ready. Really? I was thinking Lennar before, but let's talk right. specifically about what we've got here. Lennar, all these home building stocks. Think about where sentiment is towards them. No one wants to own home builders right now. Everyone has a negative view in terms of the significant price appreciation, the challenge that the consumer can have. And what does a company like Lennar do? A company like Lennar goes out and the capital allocation strategy is really put up against that negative sentiment to say to those that are bears, okay, if you want to be bearish, we'll show you what we could do with the cash generation, the quarterly dividend. Quarterly dividend comes in above 37 cents at 50 cents. That's above what the street expected. The buyback is robust at $5 billion. You stay with the home okay. builders. Can't handle the audible. That's the that's <laughs> no, the moral of that story. That, that All right, Schwab. Good one. Schwab. City downgrades to neutral from buy. The target cut to 70 from 75. So potential headline risk from SEC market structure rules number one. Customers more likely to seek out higher yield accounts. That's an interesting one as rates come down. Yeah. What do you think? Well. I mean, it feels like a non-call here. I mean, the stock's been strong, as all the financials have been. So it's rallied. And now they're saying, oh, well, you've got risk because you're a financial. It's the same risk that have existed since they started the company. And every bank has these same SEC can change the rule type of risk. This is a Robin Hood risk. And Schwab is so much bigger of an entity. So I don't buy that. I think that the stock is still inexpensive. It's 14 times next year's earnings. It's a, it's a financial. Lots of people move their cash to higher interest rates, that's going to continue to happen. And the earnings will go up because the Ameritrade deal is almost all settled. Shan. Yeah, cash sorting has already been the issue. I mean, that's stuck so off already multiple times on the cash sorting concern. So I, I just I think this calls a little late. If you're going to make this call, you could have already made it. OK, yeah. uh, American Express. So Deutsche initiates today as a buy. Two hundred and thirty five dollars is the price target. So does Bank of America. They go buy BMO, though. Hello. Downgrades to underperform. <laughs> Fine analyst, I'm sure. Uh, to underperform, target goes to 157 from 188. Carrie, you take this first because you own it. It's one of your top picks. Yeah, uh, we like American Express. You've got um, affluent people continuing to spend money, and younger affluent people are using American Express cards more than ever. We've got travel continues unabated. People are still traveling. There's not a recession. There's a lot of reasons to like a stock that, that sells for 12 times next year's earnings. Joe, you own it too? We, yeah, it, it's owned in the ETF. Um, the ownership is really more oriented to the strong price performance. I agree, the balance sheet's good, balance sheet's good, but where do we fall? Soft landing, firm landing, forget the hard landing. If it's more towards a firm landing, I think you have to acknowledge that American Express will come on under a degree of fundamental pressure. You think the BMO calls bad? I'm just He's kidding. A fine I'm just kidding. I think person. one part of the BMO call is bad. I'm just Goldman kidding. Sachs. I want to try totally to set you up. Uh, let's do one more quick. Lamb Research, City names at a top pick, replacing AMAT. Well, you own both of these stocks. Yes, own both of them. I think sit, uh, Lamb Research, in terms of semi equipment, is clearly the number one company that you want to own. You're looking for a recovery in memory. The recovery is actually coming quicker than the street had expected. Lamb Research is a quality company. 
best in breed in semi-equipment. All right. Courtney Reagan has the headlines for us today. Hey, Court. Hi, Scott. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, earlier today on Gaza's future. Blinken spoke with Abbas about the Israel-Hamas war and Gaza's future post-conflict. The Biden administration has said that the Palestinian Authority should govern both the West Bank and Gaza. The administration has also been adamant that Israel recognizes a Palestinian state as the only solution toward peace in the region. More than 20 million people signed up for Obamacare health plans, breaking last year's record. The Biden administration announced today that enhanced subsidies to help pay for the health plans were a big part in the record signups. The full tally of signups could grow as the deadline to sign up is still ahead of us on January 17th. And Mark Zuckerberg is now working in the fields. Sort of. The Meta Platform's founder and CEO posted on Instagram he's raising cows in Hawaii to create some of the best beef in the world. The cow's diet, macadamia nuts, and beer produced on his ranch. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, appreciate that. That's Courtney Reagan. Up next, Decision Day. The SEC has until the end of today to approve or deny the first ever Bitcoin ETFs. We'll find out what you can expect if and when they do start trading Bob Pisani. He's all over that money for us next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. We're back. Bitcoin's lower today. Investors awaiting that decision from the SEC on the first ever Bitcoin ETF. Bob Pisani joins us now with the very latest. So we'll see what happens today. Uh, has to happen today, one way or the other. And I guess you think it will happen after the close? Yeah, there is no reason for them to delay this. Uh, the, all the cards are aligned. All the T's and I's are crossed at this point. So I'm hopeful and everybody else is. So the investors are waiting for the SEC to approve a, a whole raft of spot Bitcoin applications, about a dozen, possibly today. Attention is turning to four areas, fees and how competitive they're going to be. And it's going to be competitive. How it might trade relative to Bitcoin and to Bitcoin futures. Number three, how much inflow will these ETFs actually attract? And finally, are institutions going to get into this game? So we've got close to a dozen applicants. The fees have been very competitive. They're changing every day, folks. Several, including Kathy Wood's ARK Invest, Bitwise Fidelity, Bitwise and Fidelity, and Valkyrie and Invesco Galaxy. They're charging 0%, zero for the first six months. Grayscale's at 1.5%, down from 2%. It's very, very competitive right now. One of the big questions is whether a spot Bitcoin ETF will track Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures. There's some concerns the spot Bitcoin ETF could trade at a premium to Bitcoin. Obviously, if that happens with a strong degree, that could create a backlash against the product. Bitcoin ETF futures, experts tell me, have tracked Bitcoin fairly well, but the spot market is still not fully mature, experts tell me. The futures market's been around for a while. It's regulated and relatively mature. We'll see how this plays out. Another issue is whether the Bitcoin ETFs will trade at a premium or discount to their net asset value on a daily basis. Most believe the spreads are going to be very tight. This is a very liquid product, and premiums will be small and get smaller over time. Again, that's something we've got to watch carefully. The other question is, how much money are these ETFs going to attract? It's not clear. We do have some precedent, though. The opening of Bitcoin futures ETFs in October 2021 brought in significant assets. The main Bitcoin futures ETF 
that's B-I-T-O, now has over $2 billion in it. Reggie Brown at GTS, a guru in this space, estimates all the funds could have 2 to $3 billion in inflows in a month and 10 to $20 billion this year. That's significant, but it's still relatively small compared to Bitcoin's roughly $900 billion market capitalization. Scotty, back to you. All right, Bob, we'll see what happens. I appreciate that. What's your take here? Several things. Number one, you could look at the GLD that has 56 billion in AUM. Um, some similarities obviously exist. So I think that's a number that's achievable if, in fact, we see the approval for a Bitcoin ETF. Um, also, if the ETF is approved and some of the fees that have been discussed, what does that mean for Coinbase? I think that would lead yeah. to some pressure for Coinbase. And then just, you know, lastly, thinking about from the aspect of if this is approved, this is really a, a shiny new toy for the algos. The algos are going to ultimately uh, love this if it is ultimately approved. And you'll see options, obviously, that will follow. Uh, this will be something that you'll have the ability to arm. You have a take? No, I don't, because I agree with the gold thing. I <laughs> but love, he does. <laughs> I, go, I love the gold call, but I just would not touch Bitcoin with a 10-foot pole. I don't any part of it. I don't think it's a real asset. Uh, I think it's a trading instrument. I think there's massive risk there. All right. Well, we're going to have uh, take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do more contrarian ideas for 2024. Brian Belsky says bet on this unloved sector. He'll tell you what it is next. Welcome back. We continue our series on the committee's top contrarian ideas for 2024. It's your turn, Mr. Belsky. What do you have? Well, how about REITs? Everybody hates REITs. Here's why. Commercial real estate is never coming back. We're never coming back to the office. Interest rates are going to be high forever. And given the fact of what rates did last year and everyone selling high yield, remember the month of October, these stocks just got crushed. So guess what? We want to take the other way, right? We want to take the other way. We want to buy REITs and find REITs in very specific stock picking like Boston properties. We added to our several portfolios December 1st. It's up 25% since then. We've owned uh, Prologis, PLD, for several years. It's mm -hmm. an industrial REIT. And in the small mid-cap space, Cube, 20% of their business is here in New York City. So as we continue to store things, especially in New York with us moving around a little bit, I think that's a really great theme. Now, given the fact that it's 3 3.5% of the market, Scott, you can actually have a little bit higher tracking area in that and have a 1% position in each one of these stocks and be overweight. That's why we like it. What's your take here? Because I think it was Anastasia where, yesterday or the day before <laughs> who picked the same thing. This is where we use the word nervous. It makes me nervous that everyone who's uh, contrarian play has been that they believe real estate will be strong in, in 2024. Jenny also. Jenny also as well. So I, I actually believe I, I like the tactical perspective on looking at the REITs. Um, obviously, things associated with apartment buildings and commercial real estate, there's going to be some difficulty. Uh, the tactical element I like, but I'm a little bit skeptical given how many people believe that it's the contrary well, in from, play. From a performance perspective, though, you have to be really careful because the dividend aristocrats got hammered last year. And the reason why is because of high yield, not dividend growth. That's number one. Value got hammered. And what's going to end up happening, we think, is this reversion to the mean. You want to own these other disciplines. And that's why a part, uh, having your portfolio apart in REITs and having that payout ratio is going to help you. Shan, you like it or no? Yeah, 
I mean, I, um, I think that there's, you know, lower cost of capital. And I think if you're looking at REITs specifically, um, Brian makes a great point in that it's not, it, there's not a lot of office when you're looking to buy REITs in the U.S. market. And so you don't, that, that's an overhang that's probably overstated, even last year with the higher cost of capital and ex expected I mean, higher defaults. Let's be clear, too. Not all REITs are created equal. Mall right. REITs, office REITs, like Jenny's got like medical building REITs, you know, think, things data like centers, that. Data centers. You, you, you have centers. to be, yes, your, your uh, warehouses and things like that. Right, like a technology, think about how important technology REITs are going to be going forward in terms of increasing technology. Think of industrials as well. We're going to store all this stuff. And on the retail side, remember, post the financial crisis, a company called Simon Properties did an amazing job can imagine all that retail that went away after the financial crisis. So there are times when you need to get into REITs, and I think now is, is an apropos time. All right, we will uh, do Mike Santoli's Midday Word when we come back. All right, welcome back. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli with his Midday Word. What's on your mind today? You know, uh, Scott, been spending the last couple of days really kind of combing the market, trying to find fault with the way it's behaving uh, in these two weeks where we've been in this pause since we hit the highs. It's kind of tough to find a lot to really complain outright about, although today and yesterday you still had sort of the protection of a couple of mega caps while you have some pullbacks going on below the surface. And I, I just wonder if the market's sort of keeping some powder dry for whatever reaction we're going to get if we do for uh, from CPI. Feels like there's a buildup of of rational confidence that inflation is going the right way. See if that uh, upends that view at all. I, I kind of doubt it. We might be able to look through even a slightly elevated CPI number tomorrow, given what we know else is going on in the economy. Yeah, I mean, if there's any conviction at all in the last few days, it's only around mega cap, you know, NVIDIA yeah. is just a stalwart. Meta's up 4% today. You know, obviously Tesla and Apple continue to have their issues, but that's where the real buying seems to be. Yeah, and I think that the, the key there is that it's, it's just making the, the very, very routine uh, sort of spillback from the, from the two-month rally just kind of get hidden uh, underneath the S&P 500. I mean, I was looking at the new high list, S&P 500 new highs. It's those secular growers, but it's also some home builders, some favorite industrials like GE and, and Train Technologies and Eaton Corp. You know, so it's not exactly like only one stock is working. Insurance and home builders still in favor. So, it's, again, it's, it's hard to really quibble with how the market's just hanging out here for two weeks. All right, we'll see you on Closing Bell a couple hours. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Final trades are next. I hope you'll join me closing bell today, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Josh Brown will be with me along with Liz Young. We'll walk you through that last hour of trading, run you right up to the end of business today when we look ahead to CPI and then earnings, of course, front and center. Brian Belsky, good to see you again. Thanks for being nice here on set you. with us. What's Thank your you. final trade? Thank you so much. Guess what? It's not a financial. Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to go with the Google machine. Uh, the stock's underperformed the last three months, and I think we're going to see some massive rotation over the next six months into that name. All right, Kerry. Uh, I'll give you Adobe. The stock had a good year last year, but it's been at a bit of a pause. There are new AI-generated products, and we think it's going to have a good year. All right, Shannon, what you got? Uh, commodities, a hedge against both geopolitical risk as well as potential growth in China. Okay, Joe, what's your final trade? A hedge <laughs> against geopolitical risk, cyber, Palo Alto Networks ready to make another new all-time high. All right, there was another uh, positive call uh, on that today. These calls, with whether it's CrowdStrike or Palo Alto, it seems like every day. Absolutely. The street's weighing in. All right, thank you, guys. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.